0: And philosophy. And Tommy Romano is one of our regulars here at St. Michael. And Tommy earned a BA in theology with a minor in philosophy from the University of St. Thomas. He then earned an MA in education administration from Grand Canyon University. And he's been um, at the faculty at Andrean High School in Indiana. Before joining the faculty at Jesuit, straight Jesuits, since 1993. So he's been there for a long time. He's one of the great formators of our young men and women because you also teach some of the ladies over at St. Agnes. Mm-hmm. And I know Tommy teaches at multiple churches throughout the Archdiocese um, and his one of his great hobbies is, is quilting. He's just shown us this gorgeous quilt that he's doing of um, Actually, it looks like it's not the incarnation. It's the nativity. The nativity, nativity. yeah. So, please help me welcome Tommy Romani to talk about philosophy. Um,
1: uh, Let me move it down. It's really... How's that? Can everybody hear it? Okay. I tend to be pretty loud anyway. And so... If I have a microphone that's too loud, I will end up blowing everybody through the back wall. So anyhow, I'm so glad Mary didn't ask me to jump in and help what was the last part of the liturgy of the word. Cause I thought it was the collection, you know, but anyhow. That's the first thing I thought of. I was like, okay, that's when they come around and want my envelope, yeah. All right, let's go ahead and begin with a prayer. Um, I know Mary started us off with a prayer, but I don't think that you can pray too much. And so we'll start off in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is a prayer um, called the Prayer for Generosity. Uh, It's attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola. Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for reward, Say that I of knowing that I do your will. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I say it every time I I speak here, it's always good to be back at St. Michael's. And I mean it. It's great. Um. I do talks all over the diocese, and I think Mary does such a great job of keeping things lively and fun, and I just see so many smiles, and there's so much energy and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and to say a little something about that opening prayer, thank you for your generosity. I mean, there's a lot of things that many of us could be doing on a Wednesday evening, you know, catching up with the family, you know, catching up with a little extra housework, although who would really be doing that? Thank God the Astros are on the East on the on the West Coast, so they're playing later. But anyhow, but thank you for being here and, and committing your time to your faith formation and, and learning about your faith. Um, again, tonight's topic is philosophy and theology. And that's kind of one of those topics where either if you're going to treat it and not go into a whole lot of depth, you know, you run the risk of doing a real kind of like Just such a brief summary that it only takes about 10 or 15 minutes. Something you could read on Wikipedia. And if you go into a little bit of depth, you run the risk of going down that rabbit hole and turning it into like, you know, a four-day seminar. Well, I promise it's not going to be a four-day seminar. You will make it out of here in time to see the Astros. Um, And so I promise that I'm also not going to do anything that you can just find on Wikipedia. Let me try putting it up here. Oh, yeah, just, just a little bit. My mom always says you could be hurt over a hurricane. I was like, yeah. <laughs> All right, there, ah, that much better, thanks. And it says, um, and first of all, just to, out of curiosity, how many here have taken like a formal theology or philosophy course? Oh, good, so we got a number of people that have already studied theology and philosophy. Um, I just thought that as I was putting the talk together it probably most interest to everyone how philosophy, theology are related topics in our search for God and, and how they help us to answer the really important questions in life. I just remember as a kid, the first time I had ever heard of theology or philosophy, I would be asking my dad questions about the faith. I grew up in Houston, very devout family. Um, Mom and Dad, you know, is always church every Sunday. If we could be on vacation in Timbuktu, we're going to find a Catholic church to go to. Um, But Mom and Dad weren't theologians. You know, my dad's an optometrist. My mom's a CPA, you know, so they were very intelligent, very well schooled, but you know, their their faith formation pretty much consisted of whatever they got in Catholic grade school and Catholic high school. And my mom, not even that, she went to a public high school. And of course, you know, I would ask questions, I was very curious, and my dad would, you know, his pat answer when, when he didn't know the answer, because we didn't have like a, a, a catechism that was like available to us like we have, the, you know, nowadays. You know, what is it? Oh, just look it up in the catechism or go online to the online catechism. And my dad would just say, oh, well, that's one of the things for the theologians to answer. And I would think, you know, in my mind, as a little kid, the theologians, these these really holy people that were just like in a back room somewhere in the Vatican, just waiting to answer these questions. I was like, well, where can I go find these theologians? And it wasn't until I started taking theology at the University of St. Thomas that I learned what theology is. Um, And I'd like to start off by saying that we are very curious people. We are very curious creatures. We look at the world and we wanna know why does this happen? What, what's the meaning behind this? Is there all, is this world all there is to life? Getting up, going to work, you know, doing my job, coming home, getting dinners, visiting with the family, going to sleep, wash, rinse, repeat, you know, just over and over, right? Is that all there is? I think there was even a famous song that says, you know, is that all there is? Um, And so ever since human beings emerged from the caves and we looked out at the stars, we wondered, what are those and and what's the meaning behind them? Uh, What's out there? Is there a God? If so, what's he like? Um, And many times throughout human history in the very early days, we had mythologies develop. Now, I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. I teach a whole course on J.R. Tolkien that I've taught for gosh, almost 20 years now. <clears throat> Anyhow, Tolkien, even though he was a very devout Catholic, was not as harsh with the pagan mythologies as a lot of Christian writers are. Christian writers sometimes will take the, the attitude of, well, they're pagan philosophies, they're they're talking about gods and goddesses that we know really are just myths, and so therefore they're they're not of very much value. In fact, that was C.S. Lewis's opinion when he first met Tolkien. He says, oh, these, you know, they had a common love of mythology. They didn't have much else in common. You know, Tolkien wasn't devout Catholic. You know, Lewis at the time was an agnostic, if you can believe it. And he says, oh, and they would study these myths together. And he says, you know, myths are very beautiful, but they're just lies. And Tolkien says, oh, they are not lies. In fact, these mythologies convey very profound truths, because what Tolkien realizes, these ancient people were attempting to understand the universe. They were asking, there's got to be something beyond just the physical world that we see, just the natural world in which we live. There's got to be something else. How do you explain how the sun always comes up in the east and goes down in the west? How do you explain how the seasons progress, how people fall in love, why tragedies happen? All these other things. And so anyhow, he was very, very, um, he was very forgiving of the pagan myths because he says, you know, at least they shine, even though ever so dimly, like a beacon in a foggy night that are leading in the right direction. Because they're saying there is something more than this, this physical world. And of course, um In the pagan world, you know, the the three great philosophers, if you ever study philosophy, and even if you haven't studied philosophy, you can't think of philosophy without thinking of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. That's usually what we think about. You know, if we're watching, you know, Jeopardy! on television and they say, this ancient Greek philosopher, we start queuing up our answers. Oh, it's probably one of these three. Boom, I'll just guess, you know. And you got about a 30% chance of guessing right, you know, because usually most answers to ancient Greek philosophy are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Socrates was the the oldest and the the, the first of the great Greek philosophers. And he his, his famous method of teaching was named after him, the Socratic method. And he would basically lead people to the answers that he believed already existed inside them by asking the right questions. And you know, a lot of great teachers do that today. It's very the simplest, easiest, dumbest way to teach is just give somebody the answer, right? What, what did Mary do? She says, "Okay, I want you to put your thinking caps on. You, you probably know this. What is a doxology?" And we all were like, mm, threw him with him and him. Yeah. You know uh you know holy 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 you know i don't know you know what is it you know and then, we'll answer says you know and then we go but but it makes us search for the truth it's, uh, socrates had this method never wrote a book as far as we know and but you know he he developed this great method of questioning asking the right question my very first philosophy class the teacher said if you're not getting the right answer maybe you're not asking the right question Ah, that, that, that's kind of like, was like one of those I thought, man, this is going to be a good course. You know, I, you know, I, I find that fascinating. Of course, Socrates' most famous student is Plato. Plato uh, wrote a book of dialogues basically featuring his mentor, Socrates, in these verbal debates with his opponents. Uh, Aristotle was a student of Plato. Uh, and actually ended up tutoring Alexander the Great. He was probably the most well-paid teacher in history because by the age of 50, he opened his own school. And in this school, um, he developed all sorts of theories on logic. He developed logic. If this and this, then this must be true. And he developed the the logical theory. He also wrote numerous books and pamphlets and, and so forth. But Plato, the middle two, or the middle of the three, was the first one to get the idea that there's got to be something other than just the physical world. Uh, again, kind of a, a shaky concept, but at least it's leading us in the right direction. He says, inside of us, there is a soul, a soul that seen. Now, he would describe it as being trapped by the body. That's a very un-Catholic way to think. We say the body is just as much a part of who we are as our soul. In fact, we don't say we have bodies. We say we are bodies. We are bodies. We are souls. And it's the integration of the soul and the body that make us uniquely us. One of the reasons why the Catholic Church does not teach... Or teaches against reincarnation. My soul isn't just like milk can be poured from this body to that body. No. When you look in the mirror at home and you're brushing your teeth, you're combing your hair, just those of you still have hair, you know, um, you know, this is this is who you are. This is who you are. This is the body God gave you. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we glorify the body. We, we pres- As St. Paul says, we, we dress up the parts that have less dignity so that they have more dignity. And the parts that already have dignity, we don't have to fancy them up that much. You know, that's straight from Scripture. Um, and so he was the first one to, to have this idea that there's something more than just the physical realm. All right, there's got to be something spiritual that cannot be measured by science, that cannot be directly studied. Aristotle, building on this, um, came to the conclusion, applying logic, and argued for the existence of one God. Now, remember, Aristotle is brought up in a, in a pagan world, a polytheistic world. But he says, you know, there may be Hera and Zeus and Achilles and all these others but there's gotta be one who's really started it all off, the ultimate, and he did this by simple use of logic, no benefit of divine revelation whatsoever. There's got to be one all-powerful being who is the source and origin of everything. Now, he had no clue what that could be, it was just a theory at that point. Now, we jump ahead to the 13th century with St. Thomas Aquinas. And again, sort of like, like I said, with some of our modern day Christian writers uh, who don't really want to go and, and deal with some of the pagan myths because they feel like if it has any ring of paganism, then it has nothing of value. Thomas Aquinas in his age, many of the philosophers and theologians, didn't want to have anything to do with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle because they thought that these were pagan philosophers. These were these were men that had nothing to offer us. And Aquinas says Oh whole although he probably would have probably said it in Italian or Latin. He, he says, no, no, they do. They have a lot to offer us. And he building upon Aristotle, especially argued that There's a lot here that we can use, that the the logical system that Aristotle built to try to come up with good arguments or good demonstrations that there is a God. And probably his most famous of all these, all his various different writings, besides the Summa, the Summa is his his maximum work. You gotta read, you know, he had to be brilliant that he writes this thing back in the 13th century, and it's still, Mary studied it. Anybody who studied theology has had to look at the Summa at some point and done research quoting it and that sort of thing. Um, His was the five arguments for the existence of God. And again, there have been books written about this, but I'm going to try to summarize them up. And the first three basically follow the same logical progression. And the first one is called the argument of motion. The argument from motion, excuse me. And, and basically it says, and, and we know this from science, that any you know, any object that's in motion will stay in motion until it is acted upon by an outside force, and any object at rest will tend to stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. The laws of you know motion. And so he said, he looked around the world and kind of building upon this concept says we see in our world things are in motion. The stars, the planets, you know, even our sun. Now he would have thought, you know, sun is, you know, we're, we're, you know, the sun's moving and we're staying still in truth. We're all moving. We know that now from science, as science improves, our philosophy and our theology improves as well. I'll talk about that later. <laughs> but he says, things don't just go into motion, he says, it has to be moved by something else. If I, you know, if I'm my toothbrush is moving across my teeth, it means my hand is moving my toothbrush. Well, what's moving my hand? And I can, I can go back and I can say, well, what moves that and what moves that? Well, there cannot be an infinite regression of movers. At some point, if the 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 earth is rotating around the sun and the earth was put into motion by the big bang, you know, and, you know, let's, we're really summarizing it here. There has to be one first mover who put everything into motion, who himself, itself is unmoved, otherwise sometimes known as the unmoved mover. <laughs> And, and so, because you cannot have this infinite regression of, of movers. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Think about like if you've ever seen a, a display of dominoes, you know, where they're doing some of these are really elaborate. Well, they'll go on YouTube, you can find it, you know, a load of them where you, you know, somebody pushes over that first domino and it goes through all this series of, you know, of motion. And this is often the example that's used to explain the argument for motion is the dominoes. That last domino fell because the domino right before it fell and that fell because the domino before it, not to get tedious, but you know, let's say there's a million dominoes in that chain. There has to be a first domino. We can't have an infinite number of dominoes because if there's an infinite number of dominoes, there's never a first one to get pushed. And so therefore the chain, the chain of movement cannot begin. And so there cannot be this infinite regression of movers. The buck has to stop at some point and there's this unmoved mover. And that, was his, and that unmoved mover, Aquinas said, is God, who is the first unmoved mover, the mover of everything that moves. Then we have the argument of causes. The argument of cause is pretty much exactly like the argument from motion, except every time you talk about motion, you talk about cause. Um, I like to do this with my, with my students, just to also find out how much they know about their own family history. I said, okay, who caused you to be? Well, my parents. That's usually an easy one. All right. Well, who caused them to be? Well, my grandparents. Well, who caused them to be? Well, my great-grandparents. Do you know their names? You know, and then we'll go through the names. And then you know, we talk about you know, this, this, who caused what? Well, eventually, just like with the argument for motion, we can argue, well, who caused you know, the Earth to be? Well, who caused the solar system to be? Who caused you know, the, the gases that form the solar system to be? Well, who caused that to be? And then we go back again, and we say, there's got to, there cannot be this infinite regression of causes either. There's got to be some first cause that is itself uncaused, who always was, who caused everything else to be. All right? And so there's that, there's that argument. Then we have the ar- argument from possibility and necessity. This is the hardest one to kind of summarize because it starts using some philosophical terms, but I think y'all can handle it. Every being, Aquinas says, has, can possibly exist. All right, I could exist or I could not exist. If I were never born and I never existed, the world would still have gone on without me. I would like to think you would have changed in some ways, but you know, ultimately either I exist or I might not have existed. And everything in the world, this chair, this table, it came into existence at some point and it'll go out of existence at some point. You know, this is why we hope to buy good beds, good furniture, good things, because we hope they exist, they they work for us for quite a long time, we get our money's worth. But we buy them knowing eventually they're going to wear out, they're going to fail, they're going to go out of existence, we're going to, by throwing them in the garbage and taking them to the garbage dump and then they get recycled or whatever, and they get turned into something else. And But there's got to be at least one being in the universe that has what we call necessary existence,
0: has to exist,
1: cannot not exist. Because just like the argument from motion and just like the argument from cause, if there's not at least one being that has necessary existence, that has to exist, then nothing else could come into the world that has possible existence. And that was his argument. To me, that's probably one of the more tenuous arguments and I think builds upon the cause argument quite a bit, but he was much smarter than me, and so I'm gonna go with him. Now, one of my favorites is the argument from degrees of perfection. He says that some things are more perfect than others, and we experience this in our own life, right? You know, um, we try something new, Hey, there's a new gas station. I'll try filling up from there. I'll try it out, see what their gas is like. It looks a little cheaper. And I put it in my car, my car runs horribly on it. I said, oh, that's not very good gas. I'm gonna go back to the station where I know they have good gas. And we do it with hamburgers, we do it with pizza. We see these, these things all the time, you know, advertised on the news to kind of draw us in. Want to know where to find the best burger in Houston? you know see what everybody says and of course we have this spectrum okay you have this burger this burger is good ah but this burger people have rated it much better and then of course this one is the best burger in town now in our minds we probably have the concept of the ultimate burger the burger that after we've had it we'd say now that is sheer other hamburger perfection alright it's cooked well it's got all the right toppings. you know the the the, the 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 juice the beef region just right you know we we have this perfect burger we also have the idea in our minds that we've never had the perfect burger we've had ones <coughs> excuse me we've had ones that have come close but we've never had the perfect burger. But somehow in our minds, we've got this idea of there's the perfect burger out there that I just haven't quite experienced yet. Although I've had some that are closer to it and some that are much further away from it. All right, and we can do that with anything, with cars, with pizza, even with people. We know people in our lives that we'd much rather hang around because they're just better people, all right? I mean, let's be honest. And there are some people that, you know, Whoever they are, sometimes we try our best to be good witnesses to them and draw them into being better people. But sometimes, you know, we just say, oh, if I don't have to have any interaction with that person, I'm not going to go out of my way. Because we realize that there's that perfect person out there that we haven't quite met, but we know some people are closer to that idea than others. And what Aquinas says is that idea of perfection that we have never directly encountered but we innately know is out there is God we are built for union with God <clears throat> and when he creates us now this would be more of a Christian concept rather than a pure logical concept we are made for God and so therefore we're always kind of in a way comparing everything to him All right, just like you may have been on a bad date and they're comparing you to their last date, whether you were better or worse. It's like, can we talk about us and not them? All right. Well, we kind of have this idea of the, the perfection and we realize certain things are closer to perfection than others. The only way we're able to say something is good, better, best is because we know there's the ultimate good out there and one is closer to it. And so therefore, this ultimate good is God, and that degrees of perfection, the fact that we can separate things into good, better, best, tell us that there is a perfect, and that perfect is God. And that the ones that are closer to God, we judge in our own experience as being the best. Then there's the argument from governance. Argument from governance. Events that occur by chance happen randomly. We understand that, you know, a light bulb, you know, goes out. Oh, well, wow, that was kind of random and odd. Or I know this isn't random and odd. I know they programmed this smoke detectors to go off at 3 a.m. I swear, and the, you know, the, they have to change the battery at 3 a.m. and you end up playing Marco Polo with which one is it, you know, and then you're fully awake by the time you find it and you can't go back to sleep. But most everything happens at random chance i'm convinced the smoke detector people have it programmed it must you know start beeping between three and four in the morning hopefully on a weekend when they can sleep in all right so anyhow but most things occur by chance events that seem to be operating in intelligent fashion the motion of the planets around the sun even the flight of an arrow towards a target arrows by themselves lie on the ground until picked up and shot by an archer towards a target and so if you happen to just be walking past a, you know an archery range happens all the time and you see an arrow flying through the air and you see it land smack dab in the middle of the bullseye, eye you say uh-huh, that was a nice random happenstance no we automatically start looking for the archer we start looking to who shot that because even if an arrow were to just you know get knocked off a shelf through a hurricane or some sort of you know, tremor in the earth like an earthquake, it's probably just gonna fall to the floor. It's not gonna fly through the air and land smack dab in a bullseye. If an arrow is flying through the air and intel and, and operating in an intelligent way, and and, and an unintelligent arrow oper- operating in an intelligent way, we could say that it had to be moved by somebody with intelligence. Somebody's governing the action of that arrow. And we look around the world and we see that things our world tends to operate in a very intelligible way. That gravity always works today as it did yesterday, as it did 200 years ago. If the world did not operate in an intelligent way, then Science couldn't happen. You know, one of the things, you know, I have friends of mine, uh, or acquaintances, I should say, that, you know, are purely scientific, you know, and they will, and I say, well, you know, I'm not a man of faith, I'm a man of science. And I was like, well, you operate on faith every day when you walk into your lab. You have faith that the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology are gonna work the same today as they did yesterday. Otherwise, science couldn't happen. And so Aquinas says that governing principle behind everything, the way the universe works, is is God. Now, speaking of science, what I'd like to do with with the time we have in the last half hour or so, is talk about the relationship between science and reason and revelation. Science, reason, revelation. Because That's when we start moving from the philosophy, because philosophy has a lot to do with science. You know, uh, scientists use logical methods for proving their hypotheses. You know, it's much like the way we do it in philosophy when we're trying to prove, you know, uh, a syllogism is the way the, the scientific method works. So there's a lot they have in common. And so I want to talk about this relationship between science, reason and revelation. Because we do see today in our culture, and like Mary, I love our country, but our culture sometimes could use a little bit of a a transfusion of good Christian identity. And that is that, that somehow, again, you have to draw this idea on whether or not you are somebody of science or somebody of faith. When I find that laughable, because all of the great scientists in history, all of them, almost all of them, have been people of faith. Um, You know, the guy who first proposed the Big Bang Theory, everybody comes up with this. It was actually a Catholic priest, Father Lemaitre, And he had to convince Albert Einstein that the universe was expanding. And the reason why Albert Einstein was so hesitant to believe that the universe was expanding is he had in his mind that the universe was static. It was just always this way. It was always this way. And it always will be this way. And it wasn't, you know, in his, his theory of relativity did not work. There were certain parts of the theory of relativity that didn't work. And Einstein just made up dark matter. Now we find out dark matter does exist, but dark matter and there's this equation and somehow it just messes everything up and that's why the math doesn't work. Father Lemaitre came along, who was a brilliant mathematician himself, and he says, you know, Albert, your theory works beautifully, and all the math comes out perfectly if you take into account that the universe is expanding, not static. Now, they, we still did not have any idea or evidence of a Big Bang theory. This is, and he basically called it the expanding universe theory, which came to be commonly known as the Big Bang theory. And Albert Einstein was hesitant to believe it. He goes, "I see your math, and it does work." Because the implications of an expanding universe, as we will see, are pretty profound. And so it wasn't until, and I forget the guy's name, uh, came along, It was an astronomer out in California at the, at the, 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 uh, the uh, astronomy, uh, Davis astronomy lab that we see in the TV's iconic landscape in Los Angeles. It's right outside of los angeles and he came up and he was able to measure the background radiation of the universe which proved that the universe a is far bigger than what we first assumed it was and it is expanding and when albert einstein saw the evidence he says i believe what father lemaitre says because if the universe is expanding remember we talked about the laws of. If, if thomas aquinas would have had that he said my proof now proves that god does exist Because if the universe is expanding, and it could expand forever, all right, but if we run time backwards, it can't contract forever. There has to be one point where it started expanding, where it wasn't expanding. Well, what happened one second before that? What caused all that to happen? Well, Thomas Klein said that's just flat evidence for God and that's one of the reasons why Albert Einstein did not want to believe it at first because an expanding universe ipso facto assumes that there's a creator now we can say everything we want about who that creator is
0: but science
1: ha- sci- we live in a scientific age that is absolutely fascinating I mean this thing is fascinating You know, I got the new iPhone, and it's like this thing has about 10,000 times more computing power than what took the people to the moon and back. Think about that. I'm carrying around more computing power than was in any shuttle that orbited the Earth. I mean, and, and it's become cheaper. I mean, I don't have to pay what they paid for the space shuttle for it. I mean, we live in a fantastic age in which science is able to measure so much. We're able to learn so much about the world around us. And through systematic observation, we can come to know nature and the laws that govern it. But science, we have to understand, is an actually, from a philosophical standpoint, a restriction of human reason. Because science is limited. What is science limited by? Say it, well, close, we're limited to what we can observe, right? If it's observable, science has observed it pretty much, right? But there are certain things that we are not able to measure that we do believe are real. And what happens is that some people who get heavily into the sciences, like some of the friends I referred to earlier. They are led to the idea that because science can measure certain things very well, that science can measure all things. And there's certain things that science cannot measure. I just remember being on an airplane one time, and Mary can probably testify to this, and that is sometimes you'll sit down on an airplane and you're going wherever you're going for the next three hours. Hi, what do you do? Uh, you know, or hi, what's your name? And after you say, what do you do? I teach high school. Oh, really, what do you teach in high school? I teach theology. And usually you get one of two reactions. Oh well, what is theology? And, or you'll get oh theology. Well, and then for the next three hours, you're listening to their theory about the life, the universe, God, everything. You know. And so sometimes, you know, it's not the better part of my nature when I get in an airplane and they'll ask me, "What do you do?" I'm a welder. You know, and it's like nobody wants to share their philosophy and theology of life with it. And and I I admit, it's not the better part of my personality. I should be using these moments for evangelization. But sometimes I just want to sleep on the plane, you know. Um, And so I remember sitting on the plane with this guy and I did not say I was a welder. And he says, oh, well, I don't believe in anything I can't prove. And I said, I feel so sorry for you. And he was like, what do you mean? I said, you don't believe your parents love you. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, prove to me your parents love you. Well, they provided for me and they fed me and they sent me to good schools. And I said, well, that doesn't prove that they love you. It just proves they wanted you to be well-educated and make a lot of money so they could retire. (laughs) He goes, oh, come on. I said, the evidence you've given me leads to the same, conclusion. just as much proves my conclusion as yours. And, and, and he was, but I go, but there's no way to prove how much love is in this room. We can't measure it. We can't we can't measure patriotism, loyalty, you know, uh, anything like that. We have scales that we can measure temperature. All right, we have scales where we can measure sound and light, but we don't have a you know the Flambotsky scale for love. All right, it just doesn't exist because we realize there are certain things that we cannot, ex- uh, we cannot measure, but that doesn't mean they're not real. But science measures what we, science is able to measure what is observable. Even things that aren't observable by the naked eye, like the air in this room. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of machines that we've invented that can, you know, measure the amount of oxygen in an area or the oxygen in your blood. I've never seen the oxygen in my blood, but I've been to the hospital and they told me how much there is because they can measure it. But it can't measure everything. And this is where reason takes over. Reason is what we've been talking about with philosophy, where we use logic and argumentation. If this is true, then this must be true. And we can see why, while science is limited to what we can observe and what we can see, reason is not limited in that way at all. Reason is able to go beyond that to, I can say, my parents love me because I, I see these things that they do for me. I see how they have sacrificed for me, and therefore these are all indicators to me of love. I can also say that because I look around the world like Aristotle did and like Thomas Aquinas did, there's got to be one God who started everything, whether whether I use the argument from motion or I use the argument from uh, cause or degrees of perfection. And so, and again, We look at a a scientist, a Christian scientist, will look at the world and see the minute, finely tuned detail at which the the universe operates and realize this could not possibly have happened by chance. There's a whole series, if you're interested in this, called, uh, you can go to magiscenter.com. Father Spitzer, is he's got a whole show on EWTN called Father Spitzer's Universe. He's very fascinating. Uh, guy but he's a he's an astrophysicist and he has gone through all the conditions just well not all of them but most of the conditions that had to happen at the moment of the big bang as soon as every all the matter in the universe went boom what had to happen temperature specific gravity acceleration everything and basically In one of the lectures that I saw of his, he went through, and of course, he knows far more science than I do. He went through 20 factors and he proved that if these 20 factors, any one of these 20 factors had been off less than one tenth of one percent, either higher or lower, gravity a little bit higher, a little bit lower, temperature a little bit higher, a little bit lower, that not only would it not have formed the physical universe, it would have never formed a physical universe capable of ever generating intelligent life, life or intelligent life. And so a scientist looks at this and says, you know, the odds of this happening, it's a greater chance of a hurricane going through a junkyard and throwing up all the scrap pieces of metal and they fall together and assemble a fully functional 747 than the universe just occurring the way it is by random chance. And there's all sorts of you know, fancy argumentation out there that will say, well, if the universe expanded and contracted, expanded and contracted, expanded and contracted so many times, this bouncing universe theory, then one of those things, the one that we happen to be living in now, just happen to have all those. But even if we have one of these bouncing, you know, expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting universe, it had to start at some point. It cannot have been doing that ad infinitum. And so we see that by using reason, we can say this universe had to have some sort of creator and how that is an expansion beyond the science. But what we have with our wonderful faith is divine revelation, which takes us a little bit further. Now we're starting to get into theology. Before when I talked about how when we emerged from our, you know, primordial selves, you know, out of the caves and we looked at the stars and wondered and we developed all these mythologies, mythology is what we get when we reach out and try to understand God. Divine revelation is what we get when God reaches down to tell us about him. All right. And so When God reaches out to tell us about himself, about us, about the world around us, we go far beyond the science. We go far beyond what our reason is even capable of. Revelation, that word, I love that word revelation. It means to remove the veil, to uncover something that was once hidden. It was always there, but now we have access to it. I love the imagery of the old temple in the Old Testament on the hill and there was the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary. And so, you know, anybody could go into the courtyard, the priests of Israel could enter the temple. But only the high priest and only at certain points of the year could go behind the veil and be in the area, the Holy of the Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and encounter God directly. The Ark of the Covenant was the, for the Jewish people, the symbol of the very presence of God here on earth. Well, when Christ dies on the cross, we, we hear this all the time. Both Catholic and Protestants alike rightly emphasize this, that the veil of the sanctuary is torn in two. There's an earthquake that account, It happens at the time of the death of Christ, and the veil is ripped in two and falls to the floor, and the obvious, the ob- symbolism is obvious. There's no more veil, there's no more hiddenness between God and mankind. That we now may approach God because Christ has restored what was lost in the Garden of Eden. That we can now, on our own, approach. We don't need the priests to go through behind the curtain. Now, we still have mediation of grace. We still have the sacraments mediated to, to us through God's ministers. There's not always that we can, as as far as the sacraments, we always have those mediated. And that's a subject for another talk and why we have sacraments and why we don't give the sacraments or we don't baptize ourselves. We don't give ourselves communion that we, we don't even go reconciliation. We still seek that through the mediation of a priest. It's not to deny that, but it just means now I can, in my own room, sit down and commune with God. I can commune with God in prayer. And now, we are far beyond the science and the, uh, and the reason. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, chapter 30, uh, paragraph 35, and you don't have to write down the whole quote. That's why I gave you the, the reference. You can look it up. It says, man's faculties make him capable of coming to a knowledge of the existence of a personal God. That's the reason part, right? But for man to be able to enter into real intimacy with him, God willed both to reveal himself to man and give him the grace of being able to welcome this revelation in faith. The proofs of God's existence, however, can predispose one to faith and help one to see faith is not in opposition to reason. Now, obviously, when, the, when it says man, it means mankind, men and women. All right. And so basically, God has given us the capacity to come to know him with the gift of reason. But by revealing himself to us, allows us to come to that intimate friendship with him. Right. I can have all the theories in the world. I can study, 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 and come to know, you know, uh, my beloved. But until I meet her, I'm not able to really fall in love with her, to really come into its intimate friendship with her, right? And so God invites us into that personal, intimate friendship with him. And this is why St. Anselm, defined theology as faith-seeking understanding. I believe, you know, there's that wonderful chapter in in the Gospels that as a kid, I was like, this guy is crazy. But now as I get older, I fully understand what the guy was saying. When when Jesus says, if you believe you can be healed, and the man responds, I do believe, help my unbelief. In other words, there's still part of us that still hungers to know more, to believe more ardently, to come into a closer relationship with God. And so when we pray, many times, whether we realize it or not, our prayer says, by sitting down or kneeling, or, or however your position is in prayer, say you're saying, God, I believe in you. And this is why I'm taking this time to commune with you. Help me commune better. You know, help me to come to a better relationship. And that's theology. I believe help my unbelief. And so this is why we spend time in RCIA. This is why we, even after we are received into the church, it's just the beginning of our faith formation. You know, I've been teaching theology 28 years and I still learn new things all the time. My, my, uh, one of the things that, that our school does is that we have to keep a, a, basically, it's like a resume in which we list the you know conferences we've attended the talks we've given even the books that we've read and they don't care if i've read you know like you know harry potter you know just put that down. in other words that you're a lifelong learner hopefully i'm reading more than just harry potter but that's just what i to be reading right now uh, but anyhow um well my students i teach tolkien i get questions about harry potter all the time and i'm like i've not read. Really, you can't you've seen the movie i have not seen the movies Cause i firmly were read, reading the books first and so this summer i finally was you know shamed enough and so i picked up the first book after i made my retreat this summer and i'm about a third of the way through book seven anyhow but they, they have us list this because they want to see all the teachers at jesuit that were not just resting on our laurels it doesn't matter what you teach but especially in our theology department we challenge each other all the time when a new book comes out, you know? We have a whole shelf of new books and then we kinda like mark our names off if we've read them, you know? And it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of positive peer pressure so we can keep our minds sharp. In, in Game of Thrones, Tyrion Lannister says, a mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone. You know, it, it keeps our mind sharp. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be something that is That difficult of theology can be something simple, but that the fact that we're reading it and primarily we're reading our scriptures, we're reading our catechism, because this is, you know, the the scripture especially is God's direct word to us. You know, we we can't ever discount that Um, now. Theology, as I said, is is us as us seeking understanding. I believe. And now I, I want to believe more. I want to have a better understanding of my faith. And as St. Thomas Aquinas said, grace builds on nature. One of my students asked a very good question the other day. I was so touched because he had no idea what a profound question it was. A 14 year old boy. You know, and he says, Mr. Romano, he says, if If I pray, will that help me? If I pray and study, will that help me to know God better? And I was like, of course. He says, but he goes, I'm only 14. I said, God will God doesn't care that you're 14 years old. He doesn't care if you're 72 years old. That as we as we study the Word of God, as we study our faith, and we come to know it better, God
0: gives us grace
1: to come to understand it more profoundly and the more we understand it profoundly the more we desire to study it more and to learn more and to read more and to pray more which brings more grace and i said it becomes this nice cycle you've heard of you know evil cycles this is a good cycle where we grow in grace god increases our capacity for grace and the only way we the only time in our lives that we can increase in our capacity for grace is this life right here. Now in heaven, hopefully we all get there, you know, we should all be working to get there, is that we'll kind of be we won't be able to grow in grace, but we'll be filled with grace. Um that's again a talk for a different a night. But the fact that we should all strive to grow in grace and holiness. As much as possible in this life, um, somebody asked me one time, "Are you holy?" I said, "I'm trying." And I go, I realize that I'm not. You know, that's the first step. I realize I'm not, but I want to be, and I desire to be. Now, I want to give you a little analogy that you can take home if you're ever trying to explain the relationship between science, reason, and revelation. To, to friends, you know, and you want to say, what did you talk about at RCIA? Well, we talked about science and philosophy and theology and reason and revelation. And this is an analogy. It's not my own, I, you know, it's, it's, it's one that's been used before, but it's a very good one. And I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with this because I want to give people time for questions. Um, imagine that you are working in an emergency room and in you know trauma center and they bring in an unconscious person before you and if I were if I had more time I would say list all the various different tests that you would run first you know and everybody starts listing well I would take the temperature I do a physical examination you know see if I could figure out if there's a bump on the head maybe that's why this young man's unconscious I would you know I would Take every measurement, blood pressure, blood alcohol level. I would do all the various different tests. No matter what test you can name, that's the science. Anything as simple as taking the pulse, to seeing if the pupils are dilated, to the the blood alcohol level or whatever. And, And there's a lot they can learn about you you know, in, in the hospital where they take all these tests. You know, what's this machine do? It tell, interprets what this machine does. And well, what does that machine do? I don't know. Anyhow, yeah, so the, you know, there's all sorts of things that they can, they can check you. X-rays, and height, and weight, and skin color, and eye color, and you know, and all this other kind of stuff. Now, the science can give us a lot of information, but it's very limited. It's limited to what we can observe about the person who's unconscious before us, right? But then we start doctors will then start to employ reason. I wonder how this young man got this way. He's unconscious. Well let's look at the blood work. Is there alcohol? Maybe he passed out. Well we can eliminate that. Well do we see any trauma, head trauma? No head trauma. Well we can eliminate that. You know we you know the heart scan was there like a stroke or a heart attack no evidence of that well we can rule that out well then we start speculating about him well you know he doesn't have any ID on him but I can look at his hands they're not calloused he looks like he's you know well dressed and well you know fed and he's got good dental work and he's wearing expensive contacts this guy's not a homeless guy all right he's he's probably employed somewhere he looks pretty healthy maybe you know, whatever. And so there's all sorts of things we can speculate. Well, maybe something or another. and We can do all sorts of speculation. Now we're getting into reason. We have no way to measure whether this guy is homeless other than what we observe, what he's wearing, the general, his health condition, and that sort of thing. But we can't know anything about this young man that is, that is most important about him until what happens. He wakes up and talks to us. What's his name? Does, is there a family that we need to contact who loves him, that is worrying about him right now? That's far more important than his blood pressure. All right. Um, what's his favorite football team? In some ways, that's more important than his, than his blood pressure. I need him to talk to me. That's the revelation. So when God reveals himself to us, some of the things God reveals to us that we learn in theology are things that we can come to by our own reason. That there's one God. That this one God was the creator of all things. But we need revelation to tell us that this God is a God of love. This is a personal God. This is a God who is Trinity. Even after God reveals that, that he's Trinity, our minds can't wrap, their, you know, can't wrap around it. You know, that, that this is something, this is a mystery that we'll be, you know, trying to understand for the rest of our lives. That he sent his son into the world who is not only God, but also fully human. That's something that has to be revealed to us. And this is what we call Jesus Christ, the fullness of revelation. Unlike the past where God sent prophets like Moses or Elijah or Ezekiel. For John the Baptist to make him known, God comes himself and says, hi, brother, hi, sister, and invites us into that personal relationship. This tells us a lot about our God. It also tells us a lot about that he loves us so much that he's willing to go suffer and die a painful death on a cross, not just for humanity's sake, but for you and you and me. And you, and you. I mean, think about that. A God who loves us that much. No way human reason could ever conceive of that. For the ancient Greeks, their human reason said every time the gods interact with us, we got the short end of the stick. God says, I'm not that kind of God. Let me show you the true God. And he reveals himself. He opens his heart quite literally for us. And then, of course, after his resurrection, and ascension into heaven. He sends us His Spirit. He leaves with us His sacraments, especially the Eucharist, where we can come and have that close personal communion with Him. Let me close with this prayer and then I'll take some questions. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. This is called the Anima Christi, also attributed to Saint Ignatius. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Separated from you, let me never be. From the malignant enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me. And bid me to come to you. That with your saints I may praise you forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, we've got about we've got about seven, ten minutes or so for questions. If people have questions, I'll do my best to answer. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just strictly about theology, philosophy, right, Mary? Okay, anything like in a past lesson that maybe you wanted to get my take on it or something? Yes, sir? I to know about the of Harry Potter, whether it's anti that whole thing, or
0: like that.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't found anything in it yet that I would be I would be like, yeah, warning, warning. You know, uh, there are some things that dabble in the occult that I would be maybe as a, if I were a parent and my children would read it, I would want to read it along with them and to kind of redirect it. Uh, uh, one of the Bishop Barron's, uh, guy who helps him run Word on Fire, Brandon Vaught is doing a webinar on Harry Potter. I think it's next Tuesday night. I'm gonna sign up for it because I'm always open to learning more. Maybe there was something that I, I didn't hear. You know, uh, again, just like anything else, as as a parent whose children are going to be reading anything, I want to know what they're reading, um, and I want to make sure that they have my my opinion on it as well as as the world's opinion. Yeah. Yes, sir.
0: So, are there any books just in growing your faith or anything that you would recommend that really? have an impact impact on you oh i
1: probably the one that and this was again divine providence at work anything by walter cizek uh c-i-s-z-e-k or is it c-i-z-e-k i should know it because i like him so much uh one is called with god in russia it's about a jesuit priest who basically went undercover behind the Iron Curtain to minister to the people of Russia, and within a couple years, spent was arrested as a traitor and a Vatican spy, and spent, you know, several decades in um, Siberia. And he writes about, you know, and his philo- his just understanding of God's presence even in the hellhole of a gulag is, is amazing. Anything by Peter Kreft. K-R-E-E-F-T, anything by Peter Kreeft is amazing. He is he is the C.S. Lewis of our time. He cranks out books by the dozens. And what is amazing about Peter Kreeft, he is perhaps one of the most brilliantly gifted philosophers of our age, but he's able to write for you and me. I want, I've want. i read probably 20, 30 of his books uh, on any topic. Like I said, there's not any one, just any of them are good. Um, and I went to go hear him when he was in town receiving award from the University of St. Thomas, their Aquinas award, which is basically, in the address is given to a room full of philosophers. And I went with a friend of mine who also has got advanced degrees in philosophy. And 10 minutes into it, I looked at my friend, I said, Mike. Are you understanding any of this? And he goes, "Man, I am pedaling as fast as I can." And just—he is that brilliant. I didn't come to appreciate that until I heard him like totally unchained, you know, boom. But his books are very easy and accessible. You could go on Amazon and read the—I think they're all available through Ignatius Press too. And you could read the blurb and find out which one you know kind of appeals to you. Uh huh.
0: You can do a YouTube, too, for him, and Google 10 Reasons to be Catholic. Yes. He's it's, did. like, one of the best, yes. like, things, and you can get it on YouTube. To yeah,
1: you and, you yeah, know. he does a lot of YouTube stuff. I thank you, Mary, for bringing that up because that's true. He he does a lot. He puts a lot of stuff out there free on YouTube, which is also really nice. I was
0: just going to mention something that has so helpful
1: to James, that you mentioned
0: Peter Critt, uh, it's his summa of...
1: The Summa of the Summa. If you're interested in philosophy and you don't want to take a full-blown theology course, the Summa of the Summa is a really good book. You had a question. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. I listen to podcasts all the time, yeah. Oh my gosh, the podcasts I listen to, I hate to admit it, are mostly political podcasts. Um, <laughs> because I, I, let's face it, I, I'll be perfectly honest, I'm sorry if I offend anybody, but I've stopped watching the news and I, I have several different news sources. I wanna be able to keep up with what's going on in the world, but I don't wanna get the extreme slanted view of things. And so I've been, I, 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 so most of the time I listen to podcasts uh, in the morning or in uh, the afternoon on the way home. Um, however, there is something that you can do that that, that I do. Uh, Universalis, it's um, universalis.com. You can sign up. You can get the app on your phone. I think it's available on Android as well, and it's got like the 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 office of readings. And one of the things, but okay, definitely, I'll I'll take one. And the more the 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 daily office is basically a recitation of certain hymns you know the the psalms and that sort of thing they usually have a reading and then a reading from a more contemporary source i say contemporary like saint augustine or sometimes like this monday was padre pio's feast day and so they had a reading from him and for like two dollars a month i can subscribe to get it in audio and i listen to that on my drive in on the way to work <laughs> it's just a great way to make my commute prayerful time yeah what was the podcast you were going to currently on the Catholic stuff you should know, but this one is called Farewell Ideology. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And of course, We're Word on Fire, we are now. yeah, and, and Word on Fire, I think St. Michael's has a subscription for the the parish, right? We do, um, and so you can, there's, on
0: our website is the passage that you, or the password that you need, yeah. but we pay monthly for a subscription. You go to our website, and it's um, under adultfaithformationformed.org, and there's the um, parish code. And if you go to form.org, then and put in the parish code, you have your own um, basically library mm-hmm. of different videos, movies, faith formation. Um, it's there's thousands of things and yeah. Bishop Barron's got his uh, connection mm-hmm. to him like the suffering church was on there and mm-hmm. yeah
1: and and there's all sorts of wonderful resources that Word on Fire, Ascension Press and many others are making available to parishes. I taught scripture for 20 years and then I took Ascension Press's epic series. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it was just like this was I mean a lot of it i already knew obviously but scripture is one of those things you never know everything and it's also a really good story. i don't know if you all ever done that here it's like my, it's called epic journey a journey through scripture no, it is it's like a 26 week thing so it usually people will start it in the fall take a break over the holidays come back you know say around february uh, I did it at my parish, Charlotte of Walsingham, and my pastor had asked me, he says, come on, you, you taught for 20 years, we could use you as a group leader. How do you say no to your pastor to, when he asks you to come? And we did it on Thursday nights. We did kind of a potluck thing. And then um, and it, it's, it's a wonderful series because it starts off with, you go home with homework to read, and it's not that much, like two or three pages, and some scripture passages. And they have a Bible that goes with it that's all color-coded and all solidly Catholic. And then what's so interesting about this program is that you sit and first talk in your groups about the reading and what it meant to you and what you got out of it. And then you watch like a little 45 minute video that kind of backs up and he doesn't strictly stick with just what you just discussed because why, Roll over it again, all right? But he goes into some more detail, and basically, what it, they call it—the epic timeline, the, the journey through the Bible—because they trace from Adam to Christ, this line that God had this plan, and we can see this line from Adam to Christ. It's it's wonderful. It's absolutely right, wonderful. Maybe we'll have to do that next year. We're doing a Catholic Way Bible study now. So cool. It's
0: kind of the same setup. Yeah. But, um One more question, if anybody has one. Yes, ma'am.
1: Went into the holy the holy places um, mm-hmm. and, and they were not the on <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was um uh, <laughs> and, and that's that's not necessarily a church teaching. This is just what we we read in the in the Old Testament. And and I'm I'm by no means an Old Testament scholar and why they did this, but you remember the holy the the ark of the covenant had all sorts of incredible powers associated with it in fact there was one time where i you know this is where i think god god was serious about this is that you know somebody the, the the priests were carrying it only the priests were allowed to touch it and it started to tip over and somebody was going to to steady it and as soon as he touched it he dropped dead like, whoa God's serious about nobody touching that thing well the whole that she was asking that when the, the the high priest would go back into the holy of holies um, they would tie a rope around his waist because nobody else was allowed to go in there. Well, what happens if something happened, he wasn't you, know, you know, prepared himself, purified himself properly, or let's just say he has a heart attack or he has a stroke or something and he dies in there. Well, nobody could go in and retrieve his body. And so the way I understand it is that every so often he'd give a little tug on the rope while he's doing the prayers to let them know he's still okay. And then if all of a sudden the rope went slack, they knew to kind of pull him out from behind the, I know it almost sounds comical, but, um, but that's, again, that was, that was the very presence of God, which should also back up for us how blessed we are to be able to approach Jesus daily in the Eucharist and say, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed, right? You know, I'm, yeah, I know I'm not worthy to do this, you know, but, but you say it, and so I believe it, you know. Amen. Thank you Amen. so much, Tommy. Thank you, Lori, for the opportunity. Why don't
0: you-